what did you get completely wrong about college? What did I get completely wrong about college? Damn you for stealing my <laughs> I told you I was going to steal it. Hi, welcome to the Was College Worth It podcast. I'm your host, Amir, a three-time college dropout turned graduate. On this podcast, I explore people's decision to go or not to go to college. I also explore the impact it's had on their lives and their careers. My number one goal here is to unpack their stories and their lessons learned to help you make an informed decision about your education and your career path. It's important to note that the opinions I express here are that of my own and only my own. They are not of the employer that I might have at the time that you're watching this recording. Please subscribe so I can maybe not say that one day. Today, my guest is John Garvins. John has a truly diverse background in music, martial arts, business, and technology. He holds a bachelor's of music degree from Illinois State University, specializing in the trombone. After starting a master's of music from the same university, John decided to drop out and pursue the technology world, specializing in Salesforce. Today, John is the owner and principal architect at Garvin's Consulting, and he's also the owner and head instructor at Freeport Martial Arts. John has created quite the reputation for himself in the technology space. He's a recognized Salesforce revenue cloud expert and commonly referred to as the CPQ guy. John is also an author with his upcoming book, The Salesforce Career Guide, which he has initially drafted using a typewriter. Yes, a typewriter. Without further ado, here is John Garvins. From as early as I can remember when college was ever talked about, it was talked about as my, both my parents went to college and had good experiences near as I could tell. They paid their own way um, through working summer jobs in the case of my dad and through working throughout the year in the case of my mom. It was the expectation from the start that they were not going to pay for college. They didn't have to pay for, or they had to pay for college. I had to pay for college. I remember being very bitter. My fresh, well, even to this day, it was like all my friends, their parents just paid for college. And I'm just thinking, Man, you're lucky at the time, you know, oh, you get to just chill and hang out and party and your parents are paying for your college and you're so spoiled and this and the other thing. And it, it was, I definitely had a chip on my shoulder because of that. I didn't, I wasn't mad at my parents though. I just kept thinking like, you guys are so freaking spoiled that your parents are paying for college. And then as I got out of college, I, I started questioning more like, why is it the expectation that parents pay for college? not their education, it's their kid's education. And at what point are you going to become a fucking adult? Because, yeah. and, and even now this whole idea of, oh, you got to save for your kid's college. Fuck that. Your kid's 18. If they can die for their country, they can vote. They can do all this other grown ass shit. They can pay for fucking college too. It's an interesting concept to think essentially that you know, the, the child is a child until they're 23, 24. Sometimes parents are paying for master's programs and I'm just going, why? Meanwhile, they're, they're putting out second mortgages on their house to pay for their kid's school or they're 
their every dollar they have is getting poured into their kids and they have no retirement savings. And I'm thinking this kid has 40 plus years to pay back these student loans. You have less than 20 years to save up enough money to live for 40 years. Where should you actually be spending your money? And that's where I think we're, we're gonna see a lot of situations where the parents have spent so heavily on their children, they can't retire. And also, by the way, the kids now have to financially support their parents because the parents don't have any retirement assets because they blew it all on their kids' college. Yeah, I, I could, I, there's one thing I wanna link back to actually my conversation with Hussein uh, before this was that we were talking about Middle Eastern cultural beliefs around pouring your money into the child's education. And that is a very, I think, I would say consistent staple. If you have the money, you pay for your child's education because back in the Until Middle East. Until what end? Until or what extent? Like exactly. Through high like school, the, through college? The, the mentality. Yeah, the, the mentality okay. back in the Middle East is you pour it in to the child and they take care of you once they get successful. That's your retirement plan. Yeah, they are your 401k. They are your RRSP. Ah. And I remember this as a yeah. child, my mom actually telling me like, this is how it works in Middle Eastern culture. Like the child gets raised and like goes, gets an education and then takes care of the parents. Americans are too selfish for that shit. Yeah. It, well, I, th I think what happened was that, that a lot of the immigrants came over with that mentality and the price of college just kept skyrocketing and mm -hmm. deviling seemingly almost every year for a little while there. And they weren't getting that same economic value outside of like at the end of college where they had a job mm. that could pay off that amount. I I'll, I'll say the tangent there. Uh, and I'm going to go, I want to go back to, and we'll, we'll probably well, re revisit and, that. And real quick, yeah. what also my uh, ex-girlfriend, it was, it was like this with her family too. It was staggering in my head because her parents bent over backwards and blew all their money on a house in a nice suburb, you know, where everything's extremely overpriced so they could go to the best schools. And guess what? Every one of those fucking kids went to a public university that anybody could go to or, or maybe somewhere private or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But like you, you blew your whole wad of cash to get to live in this expensive place. And then you paid for all your kids college and they went to some state schools yeah. that were, you, you didn't need to go and live in the most expensive place ever. I'm in the middle of fucking nowhere. And I went to a school that was just as good as them. Yeah. hundred percent. I think it, it's Illinois when you bring state, Indiana state, they're both state universities. They're both ISU. And I'm thinking, you didn't have to live in the most expensive suburb in the Chicagoland area to go to Indiana State University. I promise you that, especially if your major is education. Yeah, exactly. And I think the problem is, is when that meant that idea of the education is the golden ticket back in the Middle East or wherever uh, that well, it back well, in the day, education it have, is yeah. schooling might not be. No. Yeah, exactly. So the education in the past or whatever time the parents were growing up, that was a golden ticket. You, because there was, yeah. a, if you passed, there was a, you were going to be in a certain income level. That mentality doesn't stand true today. I don't believe. Uh, it requires a lot more. It used to set the floor. Form. Yeah. Now yeah. it does there to a certain, a, Sir Ken, uh, There's a great TED talk with a guy who's now passed, named Sir Ken Robinson. 
Um, and I think the question he was asking is, do schools kill creativity? Have you seen that one? I have. It was recommended to me by my yeah. prof, oddly enough. Yeah. And he talked about how, you know, if you had a back in the day, if you had a degree, you had a job. And if you didn't have a job, it's because you didn't want one. And I didn't want one was his little quip. And it was real funny and cheeky because he's British. Um, <laughs> I think that that is no longer true. If you have a degree and you don't have a job, it might be because no one will hire your ass yeah. or because degrees are so ubiquitous that everyone's got one now. And I, I know everyone doesn't have one and I still value training and education and things like this. But the idea that if you get a bachelor's degree, you are somehow special. No, not at all. If you have a master's degree that you're special, not really. Anyone can get a fucking degree if you're willing to shell out enough money. Yeah, it depends Pay on what the person and they will give you a degree. Like universities being nonprofit. That's hilarious. They, are they make insane. They make exorbitant amounts of money. Yale has so much in its goddamn endowment fund. They could fully fund in perpetuity any student that ever goes there. So why the fuck do they even have tuition? If you can get into Yale, your education is free. Yeah. It's, Good luck getting in. Yeah. It, it, there's a lot to be said about the, the, the cost and the value, the return on investment. And we'll, we'll definitely, uh, I want to dive into that. But what was it that caught, like, what did your parents major in and what made them want to start a dairy farm? My dad grew up in agriculture, rural Wisconsin, son of farmers himself. So it was a generational thing for him. Yeah. He went and majored, I believe, in animal science. And then my mom had a degree, I think, also in animal science, but also in biology and then maybe a physics minor or something like that. Um, and that's how they met. Was, well, they met at some sort of dance, I think. And my mom basically said, are you going to just stand there? Or are you going to ask me to dance or something? She something the first move. that you'd see in like, a, oh, she is a brazen woman. <laughs> Lots to unpack there. Uh, she, yeah, um, quite confident in herself, perhaps overly so sometimes, like a lot of us can be. Uh, but they met in college. They were both ag students. And then they get married and they got a farm and they rented the land and this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, that's kind of how they got into the, to the farming piece. Um, but that's what they majored in. They talked about it. There was never the expectation that we had to go to college, that we would only be accepted by them if we went to college from mo for most of my growing up. Once I started reading the encyclopedia about the military, I started romanticizing it in my head. As, I'm going to be a helicopter pilot in the, in the Marine Corps. That's what I want to do. Helicopter, because they had the best uniforms, you know. They, they've always had the best uniforms. But then I realized, oh, I have color deficiencies, so I can't be a helicopter pilot. Well, I'll be in the Marine Band. I'll be in one of the Marine Bands. I'll audition. I was to the point of going down and talking to recruiters, figuring out what the audition requirements are. Something shifted. I don't know what it was, but between my junior and senior year or sometime around that point, I went, nope, I'm going to go to college and be a music education major. Be like my band director. I'm going to be a high school band director. 
I'm going to do what my music teacher does. Because most of my influences at the time were my, my music teachers, in particular, my primary band director and my choir director, okay. huge musical influences. And looking back on it 20 years later, almost, um, <laughs> the, uh, what's interesting is why did I choose that major? That's just question. who I happened to be around is because I was spending so much time doing music that people say, oh, you're really good at music. You should major in music. And I thought, okay, I'll be a band director. I didn't even consider other careers really. Now let's go all the way back. I don't know what age I was. We'll call it kindergarten. I remember going into some sort of store. I think it was an American TV store. Um, they're no longer in business. I don't think or something like this, but I remember when I saw my first computer hmm. and I was in mesmerized immediate boom, this thing is cool. And my mom, even though we were dairy farmers, they were dairy farmers. I was a toddler. You probably helped out. Um, yeah, I did. I did. I legit helped. Um, we had this little tractor and a red wagon, a pedal tractor. And my dad would put hay bales in the wagon, and I would tractor pull down the middle of the barn, which was smart as shit because then he only had to carry himself half the bales. <laughs> Well, you have kids child on a farm, labor, right? Man. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not job. It's not it's not illegal if it's your own child. It's a Tom Sawyer right there. Oh yeah, this is fun. You want to do this? Mm -hmm. Okay, builds eh. character and work. It does. Oh, he says that so much. It does. Um, but we were off the farm by the time I was in first grade. That's one of his biggest regrets. Is he really wished we would have been able to grow up on the farm? But mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So it goes. Um, but yeah, I remember seeing that. And even though we were on a farm and, and they were dairy farmers, my mom still probably much against my father's will purchased a computer in the late eighties or early nineties. We're talking 1990. I can't imagine what that would cost. Five and a quarter inch flexi drives and, and, uh, all of that. And I just remember thinking it was the coolest thing. First grade still had that same computer to bring it all back. Yeah. Why did I never consider anything other than other than uh, music? I had this lifelong obsession with technology and computers. I was writing computer programs. I was putting together my own computers. I remember when Tiger Direct came out with the first one gigabyte hard drive, the first one oh, gigabyte baby. processor. What the hell am I going to do with this? Well, a gigabyte processor? Workhorse. Two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars for a one gigabyte hard drive? Wow, that's so much storage. How could you ever use that much storage? But so you have these two passions of mine, these two interests of mine the whole time. I mean, they overlapped at a certain point because I had gotten downloaded a bootleg copy of Sibelius, which is a music notation software. So now I'm sitting on a computer doing music. Uh, it also gets into some interesting conversations about what you should and should not encourage your kids to do because, well, you should be practicing your trombone. You shouldn't be messing around with Sibelius. Or in first grade or third grade, when I was first learning the piano, I was trying to compose and write music. It was basic arpeggios and stuff. You got to practice your lesson music uh, before you can or not not do your own thing because they're paying for the got piano it. lessons. They're not paying for me to compose. Got it. And so how much composing would I have done if I had had a different influence from my parents? My dad in particular, 
You're not doing the thing you're supposed to be doing. You're doing your own thing. No, I'm, I'm very Would glad you said the should. Now? I'm very, very glad. I'm very glad that you brought up the should or shouldn't. Did you have any aspect of that oh. from your parents around you should do this and shouldn't do this towards your education? Not overt and not intentional, I don't think. I was never discouraged from pursuing music as, as my degree ever. Uh, it started as music education, which totally makes sense. That's also, I think the only reason I got into the college that I did was because I was a male education major. Hmm. Um, yes, I could play trombone and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I tell, I, I tell guys, especially dude, you want to make sure you get into college, declare yourself an education, elementary education major or a nurse. I guarantee you'll get in and then change your major later. Trojan horse. <laughs> that is a great tactic. Yeah. Just get in and then Why transfer because you're already in. Everybody changes their majors five times anyway, because nobody knows what the fuck they want when they're 18 to 21 years old, 22 years old. Yeah. Which no. is also why college should be a time to just try shit, break stuff, yeah, figure things out, be a dumbass. It, that is the time that you're... But not college, that age, your that, 20s, yeah. your late teens, early 20s, late 20s. I didn't have my first corporate job until I was 28, I think. Oh, right. Because of the, the I was army. Just, I was just fucking around trying stuff. Yeah. Which is really the best way to figure out what you don't like. Yeah. I, I, I didn't like any of it. <laughs> so, uh, it was, uh, it was a very dark period as I was trying to sort these things out. When I made the decision in graduate school, I got all the way to graduate school before I went, you know what? I'm not going to be a professional musician and continuing to go down this path is dumb. And then I, a year and a half after making that decision, I tried one more semester of college because of course that was just the university that was a problem. And then I realized, nope, I'm at least not cut out to do a math, to get a master's in music in any form. Uh, I'm so interested I was, I was in school. whether that experience continued to pay off um, down the line, but I want to go back to one thing that you actually mentioned that okay. about whether your parents were saying should or shouldn't and how it wasn't overt or intentional. Do you remember interpreting it that way? I would say the, the should is you should probably go to college. They were also fine if I wanted to go straight into the Marine Corps. Okay. So they, my parents were supportive of whatever I wanted my choice to be. Join the military after high school. That got no resistance. My mom is very much do whatever fuck I want anyway. My dad is very much follows, here's what you should do. So joining the military, that's a standard career path. That's reasonable, sounds good, great. Becoming a, a teacher, totally legit. When I switched to music performance, no objections. Shit, before I graduated undergrad, I was playing gigs with my professors while everybody else was worried about who got first chair in the top ensemble at the college, I'm going, fuck that. My professor is my competition. So I better be able to play gigs with them. That's your standard. And when I got to grad school it was shocking. I'm a first year master's student taking this research methods class, which was totally stupid. But um, 
the uh, the second half of that semester, the first half of the semester was basically how to research stuff and cite things. I'm going, I don't give a fuck about this. I'm not writing a dissertation until I'm a DMA, Doctor of Musical Arts student anyway. Yeah. Why do I care? Second half of that was uh, how to basically how to write a resume for academia because when you are a musician with a master's or master's degree or doctorate your best career path is probably to get an academic job so that you can create more of yourself just 20 years delayed. <laughs> so that by the time you retire, they'll finally get an actual job that pays them something. Um, and I thought that that was also, well, well, the whole class was just, in my opinion, stupid. But the the shocking part to me was these doctoral students, these second year masters, doctoral students, doctoral students with multiple years under their belt who had never played outside of academia. They had never been hired to perform music. Robert never met the road. You're getting a fucking doctorate on this instrument. You have shelled out so much money. You have debt up to your eyeballs and you've never fucking played. Maybe you're not cut out for this shit. Meanwhile, by the time I was a junior, Probably in, well, by the time I was a sophomore in college, I was in the 85th Army Band as a professional musician. I was a trombone player in the Army for 12 years. So I was a professional musician. I was picking up little gigs here and there. Um, and then by the time I was, say, a senior, that's when I was playing little regional orchestras in central Illinois as a bass trombone player. And by the way, the tuba player back there is my professor and another professor's over here playing something. So I'm on the stage with a mixture of amateur and professional musicians, some are professors, some are students, whatever, but I had been getting compensated to play music. And then when I was first year master's student, I was one of the only first year master's student that was technically a professional musician, someone who's getting paid to play music. And it was shocking to me that I was one of the few in that position. It, it's a, the equivalent of someone studying about the trades and never having ever hammered a nail. They just studied the, the bass trombone player of the, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Right? Yeah. Bass trombone player of Chicago Symphony Orchestra, no degree. But he's a motherfucker. <laughs> so I think the second trombone player also has no degree. And I think the the uh I think the principal does technically have a degree. Not like any of them need it. No. After, I think I was in grad school when I had my, I had two lessons with the guys in the Chicago Civil Orchestra. Michael Mulcahy, the second trombone player. I had one lesson with him. I broke his shit, but I paid $195 for an hour and a half lesson with him. I show up at his house. He opened the door wearing swim trunks. <laughs> yeah. Still wet. <laughs> from the pool. So that was awkward. Uh, all right. There's a middle-aged Australian man wearing only swim trunks the first time I meet him. Great. Uh, and then Charlie Vernon paid 150 bucks to take a bass trombone lesson with him. And, uh, and I started thinking after that, hold on. I paid how much money for my degree? What if instead of spending say 30 or 40,000, we'll use round numbers, 10 grand a year for college, we'll call it. Yeah. If I spent $40,000 in college and it cost me, we'll round up. There's 150 for Charlie, there's 195 for Mulcahy, we'll throw in some gas money, whatever. 
let's say I'm spending $200 a week for lessons with these guys. If I somehow got a hold of them when I was 18 and I spent four years taking weekly lessons, shelling out $200 a lesson, every week I feel the pain of spending that money. Every week I'm going, I got to practice because I'm about to shell out another $200 for this next lesson. I would have spent less money. I would have probably practiced way more and way more intensely. I would have had a much more visceral understanding of the money involved because I'm spending it every week and I'm broke. I was broke when I was racking up all that debt too, but I didn't have to feel it because the, you know, because you get this giant loan. And then you get out of college and you go, fuck, I got to pay all this back. Yeah. And I thankfully only had, I think at my peak, about thirty-four, thirty-six thousand dollars $36,000 of debt. A friend of mine, kinesiology majored a private school. I think she had $120,000 worth of debt. What was she doing for a living? Personal trainer. Got a fucking NASM certification. Call it a day over a weekend. You could be a personal trainer. Yeah, it, it, you don't need a four-year degree to do that shit. No, it depends on what your expect. What were they? What was their goal at the end of it? Right? Did they want to build on top of that yeah. kinesiology degree? Did they? There's so many different scenarios, but it, if the goal was to increase income, then clearly no, it wasn't needed. But if it was to build on top of that and have that payoff in the future, then it might help. Well, if we look at, say, ROI, let's say that a personal trainer makes 50K a year and you can spend $200,000 or $120,000. Actually, I think her number was closer to 200. She was so concerned about it. Anyway, uh, let's call it $120,000 on a private school degree to get a kinesiology degree and you still end up a personal trainer or you spend, say, 1000 or 2000 or whatever it is for the NASM certification that says this person is a personal trainer. And then you come out the other side, still making $50,000. What was a better use of that capital? Definitely. And in the case of the former, you had to take out a whole shitload of loans. The interest of which each year alone <laughs> is worth 10 times uh, what that NASM certification cost. How about that shit? Just the interest. Oh, and by the way, you can't claim bank bankruptcy on that loan. It's the one of the only loans Correct. you can't do that. But this does give me the idea for a sci-fi novel nobody's ever written or, or a movie. That's <laughs> so it's called repoed where the ED is in caps. Yeah. And the concept is we have now figured out where in the brain your college education is and yeah. we can nuke it to forgive your loans. Because the reason you can't, ex you can't do it in bankruptcy, you still have the knowledge. Well, what if we could get rid of the knowledge? You get rid of your whole college experience and now you don't have the debt. No problem. It's like a black mirror episode, but now you also don't know who any of those friends are. You don't have any of those positive memories, all this other stuff. Yeah. So that's a whole other conversation. I, I will say oh, just to close this chapter, um, it doesn't sound like you were worried about disappointing people with your college choice. You weren't worried about disappointing your parents. No. Okay. And mm -mm. I think, no, not at all. And then I, you know, after college, I get into the world of tech. There are a lot of people from Middle Eastern uh, or East Asian, India, et cetera. And I'm realizing, wow, so many expectations are heaped on people, so much pressure. Yeah. Um, 
torturous amounts in some cases. You will do this. This is going to be your life. Uh, I think of a blogger that I really like, Ramit Sethi. He writes some good stuff about careers as well, has some online courses for it. The fact that he is a blogger by trade is not what he's supposed to be. He is supposed to be a doctor. Or he is supposed to be something else or a lawyer. Yeah. You are not supposed to be a blogger on the internet peddling online courses. But weirdly, and this will be relevant for our conversation, I feel I, at least as far as professional corporate skills, I've learned more from his online courses than I have from my fucking music degree. Yeah. So it's education that matters. It is not schooling. Yeah. It's... Mark Twain talked about that. I never let my education, I never let my schooling interfere with my education, is what Mark Twain said. My parents have, have been supportive of pretty much every career decision I've made, especially once I got into corporate <laughs> world because my career went crazy. The only part that my mom doesn't really have an opinion one way or the other. She's just more preoccupied with herself. But my dad, with my latest choice to go on a sabbatical, he was very not sure what to think about that for a little bit. But he didn't necessarily uh, judge the decision immediately. He just didn't know how to process it. And what do you, what do you mean, you 38-year-old? Or well, I'm not 38 yet. They're still 37. What do you mean, 37-year-old guy, that you're just going to quit your job and not have another job lined up and not even be trying to start a business? And for those listening, that is like what you're doing right now, like as of this weekend. Like this is what you're going on sabbatical. As of next Friday. Next Friday. Friday is my last day at my current job, and I am going to not work. For how long? By choice. I don't know. It seems risky. One of my friends really suggested that I not do it because, you know, we're basically in a recession, although no one will actually admit it. Yeah. And he's going, quitting your job and not having another thing lined up and having a gap in your resume is probably not the smartest move. But here's the thing. I have a portfolio career now. I'm not just John Garvin, Salesforce architect and director at a consulting firm. I'm also John Garvin's author, John Garvin's business owner and head instructor at Freeport Martial Arts. So it'll give the perception on my LinkedIn profile of, okay, so I did this director thing. And then what am I going to do six months from now if I go, shit, I need a job. And they go, there's a gap in your resume. Ah, but there's not. See, what I tried to do was I, I resigned from my job to give a shot at starting a business. I learned a ton of lessons. Let me tell you some of them made a lot of mistakes. They were great. I learned a ton of things from those. Um, in the end, couldn't make the ends meet, couldn't bring it together to, to make it profitable enough to, to live off of it. So here I am looking for a job. I still have the gym. It's still successful. Now it makes me an interesting candidate. I don't have an employment gap. I have a different employment gap. It's not even a gap. I have a different form of employment. I gave a shot at entrepreneurship. So they go, oh, he's entrepreneurial. He's willing to try and fail. Oh, it's all in how you frame it. Tell me more about that term, portfolio career. It's a developing concept in my head and probably a topic of a book or at least a blog post. It's just the idea that I'm going to intentionally, thoughtfully, deliberately, maintain multiple independent but mutually beneficial careers um, 
because I am not a typical employee. I'm not an in the box guy. I'm making my own box. I don't even know if it's a box. Um, most of us will have a day job. Even if you're say an entrepreneur or CEO or whatever, you're going to have your day job. Your day job is a business owner, whatever. I am interested in lots of different things and I want to, um, I, I, I can focus very well, but I don't like to do just one thing. So I'm seeing this as a mixture. It's in the investment world, we would, uh, in the investment world, you would not put all of your money into one stock unless you, you know, are up for that level of risk. Yeah. Or some people listening are like, I'm going to put it all in Bitcoin. What could possibly go wrong? Well, thanks SPF. Um, just put it all in FTX. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, don't worry about it. Enron. Yeah. Put all your money in Enron. What could go wrong? Cause it was like cover fortune magazine or whatever. You wouldn't do that, right? You were going to diversify to spread out the risk. Why don't we do that with our jobs? Why don't we do that with our education? We get this one degree and then I'm never going to get any training or education ever again, because that one degree that I got that one time is sufficient. I don't know. I like to take lots of different courses. I've taken courses on uh, personal finance. I've taken courses on freelancing starting online businesses, writing resumes, all sorts of different things that have nothing that you can't get in a college, but they're more practical life skills in a lot of cases. Why would we do the similar thing with our career? I have a job, 100% of my income. If you think of it yourself as a business, 100% of my revenue comes from one customer. In the business world, that is extremely risky. Why would you do that? Why do we do that in our careers? I want a little bit of money coming in from a bunch of interconnect, like a bunch of different things that I can do, but that if this industry fails, I still got 80% of my revenue comes in. If two industry fails, I still got 60%. I want to distribute my income across multiple streams so that I don't have to worry about that or my risk is reduced. So it seems like you're kind of okay. applying this laterally to the marketable skills that, and experiences and education that you would get. Correct. And because all of these things are independent yet mutually beneficial, that's the key. Writing a book, running a jujitsu gym and consulting on software implementations are completely independent things yet. The skills developed in each, the education gained in each, are mutually beneficial. My job as an expert in revenue operations, quote to cash, business process, Salesforce Revenue Cloud, helped me really make sure that my business processes, because every business has processes, whether or not they're documented or followed is a whole other thing. But that helped me think through the jujitsu gym is what is the fastest way to sell stuff and get money? Low friction, easy for me, easy for the customer. How do I get money in the bank? So that skill developed over here helps this. 
owning a business helps me deeply understand what it's like to own a business. So then when I'm talking to a CEO over here, I go, I know what it feels like because I'm also a business owner. I get you. I understand what you're talking about. We can both lament the bullshit you got to deal with as a business owner. Writing a book benefits both of those because we're always communicating with other people. Isn't it funny how we'll learn about imaginary numbers, which I guess actually have a place in the world. I just don't fucking understand them. They were called imaginary in algebra two and I deal with reality. So I thought I don't need to worry about this. Isn't it funny? We talk to people and communicate with other humans every day of our lives. And we spend one semester in high school and one semester in college learning about communication. Wait a minute. I learned more about how to communicate with other people through a year of improv classes at the second city than I did in communications in high school and communications in college. Here's how to put together a speech. Okay, important skill. You're going to have to present at some point. Same basic class in college three, four years later. Okay, I guess I'll just do another speech to a room of 24 people. But how to really listen, how to, um, how to interact with other human beings. We don't learn that stuff. Why don't we learn about how to talk about feelings and emotions in school? That would be so valuable. Why don't we learn about how to manage money in school? Money touches every single aspect of our lives, yet we don't learn how to do any, uh, you know, one week or one lesson in home economics class in high school about how to balance a checkbook and apply for a job at Walmart. That's not teaching financial literacy. That's literally what I had to do. Uh, you know, so what I was hearing is diversify your 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 education, like you diversify, like you would diversify, diversify your income streams and your portfolio. It makes you a more interesting person. Yeah. When you can carry on a conversation with anybody about anything. That that's a that's a general theme of my life. I want to be able to talk to anybody about anything. And I may not know a lot. I might not be the expert on it, but I can ask good questions. And that kind of harps on one of the questions I was going to ask you. And this is, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Hussein, who you know as well, it was my first interview. Mm -hmm. He brought up. Love Hussein. He's oh, great. he's fantastic. It, and how upbeat he is is so contagious. I always come out of it yes. like in a good mood. I love it. Uh, and it's genuine too. It's not bullshit. It's authentic. Yeah. And he brought up how he truly believes that being likable is a marketable skill set in the workplace. Fuck yeah, it is. And he's talk. Who's going to get fired first? The likable person or the asshole? <laughs> the latter. I'm paying both of them the same money. They both do the same level of work. Who's getting fired? Yeah. And, and the person making that decision is asking them if they have true hundred percent weight on that decision. They're going to ask, who do I want to keep working with? And mm -hmm. who do I want to spend eight hours of my day with? Yeah. The person I like or the person I hate. Yeah. And how he... It's not hard. It's a, no, not at all. And how Hussein actually came... And when he was kind of going through the, the thought process, like, well, how do you become likable? He's like, oh, you get a breadth of experiences so you can kind of tailor your conversation and connect with anybody. Chameleon. Yeah. And not in a manipulative way. Conversational chameleon. Yeah. yeah. But you if can adjust. You connect with people and they we're, we're drawn to things that are similar to us. So if you connect, mm -hmm. that's going to hold weight in as, as a marketable skill. What are your thoughts on that? 
the most marketable skills, the ones that are not on the job description. Interesting. That's an original right now. I've never said that before. <laughs> Docket quotes right there. <laughs> right. There's a reason in my, in my book, I have a whole chapter on building your non-Salesforce skills. Building your Salesforce skills is the chapter beforehand. That's what people want. What people need is the following chapter of building your non-Salesforce skills where I talk about <clears throat> leadership, networking, negotiation, communication, all these different things that people don't think about. I start that chapter by saying that 80% of your Salesforce career has nothing to do with Salesforce. 80% of insert any fucking career has nothing to do with that career. Your actual skill and job, yeah, that's important, but that's 20%. It might be the most important, you know, 80, 20. You gotta be able to do your shit, know, know what you're talking about, but do good work, be easy to work with, deliver things on time, be reliable. That is not in the, usually not in the job description. That's what people are really looking for. I can teach you how to do stuff in Salesforce. I can't teach you how to not be an asshole. I mean, I, guess I can, but it's harder. Can you outline that again? So do good work, be easy to work with. And then what are the other two? Yeah. I'm stealing here, basically stealing from, uh, the commencement speech by, uh, Neil Gaiman. Fantastic. Might be better than Steve Jobs's. It's close. It's really good, but he's. You know, you do good work, turn it in on time and be easy to work with is essentially the three things. And he elaborates and goes, you don't even have to be all three because if you do good work on time, people will tolerate the fact that you're an asshole. <laughs> if you are nice and you do good work, people will tolerate that it's late. If you do good work or if you turn and work on time and you're nice to work with, it's okay if it's a little substandard. Your work is your quality of work is just okay. Yeah. Pick two. Two out of three. Yeah. Just get two, right? Pick two. But if you got all three and uh, that's something people, people overlook the likability thing. Yeah. I want to work with my friends. And at this point in my career, if I start my own company one day, not really if at this point, it's more when so I make, I don't want to make my own box. I'm tired of other people's boxes. I'm going to make my own box. It's going to be weird looking. It's going to be yours. And though. it's going to be mine. It will be distinctly mine. I said something to my buddy the other day. I might need to massage it a little bit, but I basically said, make your life a story. No one else can tell. Love that. Love it. How many people do you know who were music majors and military musicians who are also managed a mixed martial arts gym, interned for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, put yogurts on shelves at Whole Foods, became a Salesforce architect, started an MMA gym of their own, uh, and wrote a book, and I don't know, uh, do career coaching. How many people are uh, fit those criteria? Got the beard. Oh yeah, and have a sweet ass beard. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely one. And also, oh, by the way, our Salesforce certified instructor. I'm the only person, there are two people outside of Salesforce that became Salesforce certified instructors in CPQ. Configure price quote for those listening, how you quote customers and, and sell them or whatever. That's my expertise. 
Um, there is no major for that. In fact, the product didn't even exist when I was in college in any form. With your education in, in music performance, what yeah. marketable skills did you get from your experience in getting that degree that applied to what you're doing today? I love this question and I bet you don't know how I'm going to respond. I don't. Creativity. I spent four years majoring in creative, the creative thought and creativity as did every fine arts major who's out there. I don't think I can think outside the box when it comes to business because I don't know what the box is. I just get creative and think, what's the solution to this? What was it about the education part that had you work on that creativity specifically? How can you not work on creativity as a musician? You have to think creatively. It's also logical or as a, a fine art major or as an actor, yeah. you're all creating. And that is a huge advantage that I have over everybody else who does what I do. You went to business school, you're learning the way it's supposed to be done. You learned the shoulds. You spent four years majoring in shoulds. So now you got your blinders on. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I just listen and I think you could probably do this. And then I, you know, people are, oh, that's an interesting idea. It's an original idea. Uh, is it original? I don't know. I don't know what the ideas are supposed to be. So I just come up with my own. So that's how I've reframed my degree in music performance. I spent four years majoring in creativity. What's an example of how that creativity that you've worked on in music performance has kind of manifested itself in your workplace? Uh, and like, obviously, like if you can't talk about certain clients, don't say names of clients or anything, but. Um, well, just speaking general principles, like as a software architect, I have the basic tools. I have the building blocks. In the case of music, you got 12 notes of the, of the, um, of Western music, at least that if we want to get more nuanced, there are other styles that have different tonalities, we'll call it. But in traditional Western music, you got 12 notes. That's it. Just 12. How much music on earth has been written with just 12 notes? Crazy, right? Especially today. The variability. Millions, millions of songs. Who knows, maybe billions of songs have been written with the same damn 12 notes. If you're an artist, you got five brushes, you got some paints. How many paintings have been painted that are all unique and different? Revenue Cloud's the same way. It is a set of tools that I have. I got my brushes, I got my colors, all this other stuff. But each business is a little bit unique. And so I use creativity every freaking day. How am I going to get out of this mess? How am I going to get this done? Oh man. Well, here's a limitation. Here's a limitation. There's no answer for this. It's never been done before. How can I, how can I make something happen with the same tools I've been using the whole time? Uh, how can I make something new happen? 
How can I solve for this? So it's, it's just, uh, and yeah, there's the best practices and stuff. Part of the reason I've toyed with getting an MBA over the years is to learn what the box is. Now that I've lived and operated outside of any boxes, I almost want to go to business school now to see the box, to view it objectively from an outside perspective and perhaps see something that no one else has seen. I'm looking at the box from the outside in versus the inside out, which I have a different perspective on it. Talk to me about that, that decision right now that you're kind of toying with, with going and getting your MBA. What's the current story in your head as you're making that decision? Well, this decision has been in my head for, I would estimate no less than five years. Okay. But I just can't pull the trigger. Uh, not can't pull the trigger, won't pull the trigger. What's stopping Haven't you? Haven't pulled the trigger. Why should I get it? Because you think about the big reasons people get an MBA. My buddy's getting one. He has a non-traditional career just like me. He's somebody you should probably interview the person I mentioned. Spent, I think, 12 years getting his bachelor's. Yet the whole time, he was an engineer designing uh, bottles for use in medical industries and things like this, working for companies like Rexum, which makes all the orange bottles that we get our medicine in. He's designing caps and bottles with precision to thousands of an inch, all this other stuff. No degree at all. Eventually got the degree, went and worked in industry and stuff. And now he's going and getting an MBA in an executive program. Why? He wants to learn the rules of business. He also used to manage martial arts schools and stuff. Um, for me, his wife actually is the first person who said, you should get an MBA. I respect her opinion a great deal. It's brilliant. And um, I respect her opinion quite a bit. And so I started to explore the idea. Now, when I started to explore the idea, I was a Salesforce administrator, individual contributor, new to the tech industry, uh, maybe like 48K, something like that, living the, living the good life. I mean, that was way over, that was more than twice as much as I was making managing the MMA gym, making less than $20,000 that year. So, an MBA, I thought, wow, look at that. The average outgoing salary is like $100,000, $120,000. Wow, it's amazing. And, and I'm not ready yet. I didn't have much to speak of. I've been rejected flat out by all those places. And then you go through your career, grow my career rapidly, this, that, and the other thing. One thing leads to another. Next thing you know, I'm making as much. And now money's not the only thing, but money is an indicator of you know, value creation. And now I'm making as much as a graduate from a top MBA program. Okay. So the money is a big reason people get an MBA. They're in the nonprofit. They want to come out and they want to start making six figures. Great. Get an MBA. You're basically buying a higher income, essentially. But there's so many MBA programs now, unless you go to a top 10 school, and there are 20 top 10 schools, depending on which ranking you're looking at. Unless you go to a top school, you're just another random person with an MBA from whatever university. There's no prestige with it. Everybody on LinkedIn's got comma MBA on their thing. And I'm going, that's fine. Uh, I'm your consultant telling you how you should run your business better. And I have a trombone performance degree. 
So money's one big thing. People go, so that's out. Now I'm well past that. Point. Are, are you comfortable talking about the salary? Starting a week from yeah. now. Yeah. Starting a week from now. So my, my first corporate job, I went from making like 20K at the gym plus the reserves. All in. It was 20K. I was broke motherfucker. <laughs> and first corporate job was $40,000 salary. 10% bonus. Oh, my. Forty thousand dollars. It's more than twice as much money. I I was making so much money in here. Forty thousand dollars. Holy shit! I can, I don't. Yeah, I can buy steak once in a while. <laughs> um, I can save a little bit of money. Although I was able to save some money then because you know, just being a cheap ass. And then I got some more. Got my first Salesforce admin job. I wanted eighty. They offered seventy five. And that's when I said, "Well, will you make me a senior Salesforce administrator?" even though I'm the only Salesforce administrator. They didn't care about that. Okay, title costs us nothing. So then I jumped up to 75,000 from 48. Pretty nice jump. A little bit of a year goes by, I learned this crazy thing called CPQ. And then uh, I leave the administration side, I get into consulting following some advice from a mentor of mine. My first six figure base salary, $100,000 on the button. $15,000 bonus. Wow. I didn't, I didn't even know what to do. Like you, I just stared at the offer letter. This is insane. $100,000 for me, the trombone player. What? <laughs> I'd have to be in Chicago Symphony Orchestra to make this much money. And then after that next gig, 140. And I had 3% equity in the business which I knew uh, after about six months was not gonna be worth dog shit, but um, which is why I left and went to Salesforce. And at Salesforce, I kind of went sideways on the income and I went down in title. I went for president and partner of a company that nobody's ever heard of or cares about to implementation architects at one of the biggest software companies in the whole world. And I was hired as a product expert for one of the most difficult and complicated to implement products the trombone player. And I had some restricted stock units as part of that too. So not only did I have a base salary that was 150 plus, or 147, I think was where I was hired. I had a 15% bonus, and about 50K of restricted stock units as part of my job offer. First time I've had stock as part of a, an offer. Now I quit inside, I quit after 18 months to do something else, but, so I didn't get all that $50,000 worth of stock, but just like to think that that's where I ended up. And then in the most recent role, my salary alone was over 200 and my total comp was over a quarter million. Now I'm gonna quit before I actually get my bonus, which is, I would only have to gut it out for a couple more months, but you know what? That would make it about the money. And it's ain't about the money. It's about something bigger and deeper. So um, that's kind of where the salary is. So you go from 10 years ago to now, my income 10 X. And now it's about to drop down to where it was 10 years ago. <laughs> it's just accordion, accordioning in and out. Yeah, I, right. I will, 
thank you for sharing the, the numbers as well. Cause I think it's really important mm -hmm. to the audience in that. Like, yeah, your results may vary. Well, uh, and is it possible to make that much money in this industry? Yes. I was able to do it in an accelerated pace, probably a combination of luck, yeah. skill, privilege, whatever. I am a lucky motherfucker. Well, I, I also want to highlight that this isn't like to, for people coming out of high school and wondering about like, oh, the, the dropout stories is that you have the ability, if things get bad, to pick up and pick up consulting gigs because you're in a very niche market and to start generating that type of Well, yeah. It's not like you've quit. Well, in my own consulting gigs is one thing, but like, let's just, let's just go more standard. What if I need another job? I will send a couple of text messages or Slack messages or emails. I'll have a, a verbal in a couple hours. Yeah. Legit. I could reach out if I wanted a job, there's a particular buddy of mine. If I wanted a job, I'll just send him a text. Hey man, I want a job done. It's, it's a foregone conclusion for me that I can get a job. So now I'm to the point where I, I have so much security and confidence in my position and my skills and my expertise and my network that I am not worried at all about getting another job, which then gives me, and because of high income and my savings rate, I've bought myself freedom. Most people call it an emergency fund because they live in paycheck to paycheck. So you gotta have six months of expenses well, I've been living on less than one paycheck for years at this point. And so every month I work, I gain one month of emergency fund because I'm only living on one paycheck. And because of that, I don't have an emergency fund. I have a fuck it fund. And I've decided, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna work. And I'm not gonna work for six months. And if I, if I make $0 for the next six months, I will be just fine. Yeah. And if I'm able to pull in just a little bit of income, that's six months. Let's say I pull in half of my monthly expenses from some sort of thing. Maybe it's the gym. Maybe it's private lessons at the gym. Maybe it's trombone lessons. I don't fucking know. But I pull in enough to cover half my expenses. Now that six-month fuck it fund is a 12-month fuck it fund. Stretches out even further. And if I, if I run the numbers, my billable rate on projects has been 250, 275 for a while. These companies are, you know, total revenue for the hours that I bill. Let's just use 250 for simple math. $250 an hour. If I build 20 hours a week, that's $250,000 a year. Billing 20 hours a week, $250,000 a year. A common year of 40 hours is 2,000 hours in a year. So you take your hourly rate times two, add three zeros. So if I was billing 40 hours a year at $250 an hour, that's $500,000 worth of revenue. Just me, 500,000. I can quit my job. I can do things just for myself, work the same intensity and make half a million dollars a year at that rate. But wait a minute, portfolio career. What if I do 20? I only do 20 hours a week. And yeah, you'll have some administrative stuff. The big variable here is, can you bring in deals? That's where the relationships come in. 
branding, all this other stuff that I've been working on for, for so long. Like, what if I work as hard on my own thing as I work for somebody else's thing? And then on top of that, we got, uh, what, what if I think about it differently still 10 hours a week? What if I have one client and I do 10 hours a week, I'm writing my book, I'm doing two hours a day of work for some client teaching jujitsu classes at night, $250 an hour for 10 hours a week is $125,000 a year. 250, 10 hours, $125,000 a year. My total cost of living is less than $40,000 a year. Do you suppose that I could survive with $125,000 income working 10 hours a week, doing something I like, being extremely picky with who I work with? And well, if I'm one of the best that does this thing, because I just have this crazy skill set, and I actually say, you know what, to reduce the number of clients that want to work with me in the first place and filter in only those clients that can and will pay top dollar for great consulting. What if I make my rate 300 an hour? 300 an hour, 10 hours a week is $150,000 a year. At $300 an hour, if I bill 15 hours a week, my income, my base income goes sideways. And now I just fit different pieces and parts in with that. What I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm my own dev center when I'm doing architectural work. Maybe I have one client and I scope out a project and I say, uh, yep, we're so for architectural work, that's 250 an hour for for development work. That's going to be 150 an hour or $200 an hour or whatever. What if I'm my own dev center? <laughs> because for me to create fields, I can do that while watching a movie on YouTube or something like that. Yeah. You know, and that's easy for me, but the hard architectural thinking, that's a premium. You could, you could almost sell a deal as if there are going to be multiple people on it, but you're just the one building everything. You just do it at different rates, depending on what you're doing. Because you, you've been through the whole cycle before you right. understand it. Just, I, I wanted to hear your mental model as you were approaching this, mm -hmm. do you approach college with that kind of mental model in terms of, in terms of a cost benefit analysis? If not, where did you learn? Oh, fuck. No, okay. absolutely not. No, I didn't. I mean, I knew college was expensive, but people just get loans for college. That's what you do. Cause when my, unless you were my parents and that's where a lot of these rah, 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 people complaining that they don't, that they got a lot of student debt. Well, back in my day, I just worked a job. Okay, fine. Uh, I'm thinking here, like my mom or my dad, my dad would work 12 hour days, harvesting mint all summer, save up, squirrel away a whole bunch of money. Fucking fresh and at the end of it too. The whole year. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, live on it the whole year, do the whole thing the next summer, whatever. Was it a bone crushing schedule during the summer to harvest all that mint? Yeah, but then he didn't have to work the whole rest of the year. He could afford not only his tuition, he could afford room and board and his apartment, whatever he needed to do for a whole year. You can't do that shit today. No. 30, 20, 30, $40,000 a year. Let's just take, I don't know, you've done more research on this than I have. What is the average public school one year price? Let me actually, I'll take a, so 30 grand probably um, sound right pull it up because i actually do have it in my manuscript somewhere here um 
according to this source, when you are looking at, you are looking at the following for an undergraduate degree at a public four-year college in state, in state. So the same state that you're residing in tuition is, uh, just under 10,000 a year. And then you, okay, we'll use 10,000 for, and, and if you're room and board, it's, uh, 10,800 a year on top of that 20 and then books and supplies twelve fifty. So we'll call it 20 grand. Um, 1250. I could have for simplicity's sake. So we'll just call it 25. I, I could have saved you time. Yeah, um, you got it. Uh, I was going to go down the list. Your total price tag for that undergraduate degree is t approximately $25,000 per year in state public college. Look at that. Uh, I love back of the napkin math. Um, Okay, so we got $25,000 per year, right? Okay, that all in, could, is it reasonable that a high school graduate with no degree in work ethic, what would they have to work to make $25,000 plus for that, that's for the whole school year, um, their cost of living, actually you live real cheap, lots of ramen, pizza slices, all that shit. All right. So we'll say that it costs an undergraduate $25,000 a year to live. Our parents' generation likes to say, well, I paid my way through school and I just worked during the summer and then I saved up and then I did it. Okay. What high school student can make $25,000 in three months? That's to say they found a job where the prorated, the job is a $100,000 a year job for a high school graduate. Tell me what high schooler is going to be able to afford to just work during the summer and afford what is the equivalent of, you know, $100,000 or something like that. Like they're, they're going to be able to make a $100,000 a year rate for three months. You can do that if you're an MBA candidate at one of the top business schools in the world and you get that internship. But if you're a high school kid, if you're an undergrad, you don't even have a degree yet. So that's a non-starter. Okay, well, you're gonna work during the year. Okay, let's just raw dollars. What would you have to work in a year? So $25,000 in a year, that would be a full-time job making $12.50 an hour. And then, oh, by the way, you're also a full-time student. Okay, well, Let's do the same math that we did for my $250 an hour example. Let's say you're able to make $25 an hour for 20 hours a week or $50 an hour, 10 hours a week. Now here's what's interesting. You might be able to make that work. Let's say that you are a high school kid who's trying to go to school and you know you need to work your way through college because mom and dad can't afford it. How could you make 50 bucks an hour so you only have to bill 10 hours a week to this thing so you can afford $25,000 for your entire education and pay cash up front instead of going into debt. Well, there are actually skill sets out there that you could develop where people would pay 50 bucks an hour, like say web design, or maybe you uh, sell services as some sort of freelancer or consultant. By the way, if you call yourself a consultant, you can charge twice as much than you can as if you call yourself a freelancer. Freelancer has the word fucking free in it. Yeah. <laughs> now, it originally comes Words from a freelance in the medieval period, and you'd like fight for money. You're just free to do your own thing. But 
Don't call yourself a freelancer. Call yourself a consultant. Or better yet, call yourself a strategist. Ooh, that's fancy. But a consultant. Consultants are expensive. Freelancers are cheap. Be a consultant. Now, let's go even crazier. What if somehow you developed a skill where people would pay you 100 bucks an hour as this undergrad? Then you'd only have to do five hours a week to cover $25,000 a year. Yeah, but you know, at that point, it's like, well, what value add? Why would is you that go to school? Adding? Yeah. If you're charging $50, if you're charging $50 an hour, that's $100,000 on 40 billable hours a week. It, the only path forward I can think of that would make that justified is like if whatever you're doing in education is something that you really, really want to yeah, do. Absolutely. And, and you if you just... want to go to college, go to college. Yeah. But you, yeah, there are other pathways to making good incomes that don't involve college. And that number was going to increase tremendously when all of these boomers who are doing blue collar jobs that none of us fucking millennials and below want to do. <laughs> What I appreciate about how you're approaching it is you're actually considering all these variables and how mm -hmm. they're, they're influencing what at the end of the day is your goal, as opposed to what I think a lot of people, including myself, fell into, which was just, you go to college, you know, you're like, you're guaranteed. That's what I did. Yeah. It's well, like, well, you that's, just, that's just I'll just rack up loans because that's what people do. They go to college, they get loans, and then you yeah. pay them back over 20 or 30 years. That's what yeah. most people do. Yeah. Um, I wish from my experience that I actually looked into it more and did that kind of thinking that you're doing with how much is this going to cost? And I wish I would have done that kind of thinking back then. Damn. And which actually takes me to my next question was if you could like, not change the past, but if you could speak to uh, John from when he was deciding what college to go to or whether to go to college, um, or even during those years, what would you tell yourself to press harder on in terms of a gas pedal? And conversely, what would you tell yourself to kind of lean into the brake a little more and kind of ease off on? I would have, in retrospect, I would like to have studied more and actually given a shit and tried with some of my classes because some of the like gen eds, it was not a priority, but at the same time, the part of the reason I was gigging with my professors by the time I graduated is because I wasn't wasting time studying math. I was clear on my priorities. I was going to be an exceptional trombone player. That was what I was going to do. And I had picked music education, but it wasn't long before it was clear that that wasn't what I was going to do because people started taking education classes their freshman year. I didn't take my first education class until I was a junior. And then in the first education class I took, I thought, this is stupid. I'm not going to do this. And I think it took another six months for me to actually change my major to performance. But I was a trombone jock. That was what I was going to do. So anything that was not that was interfering with my goal to be an exceptional trombone player. Um, I would have done more stupid shit. That's what I tell people. That's the counterintuitive advice I give to young people in general. 
regardless of college, do more stupid shit, not illegal shit, not dangerous shit that's going to get you like hurt or killed, but just do silly things. So that yeah, you have some fun stories to tell later. Those mistakes are going to inform the rest of your life. Is it a permanent mistake that could be made? Uh, be more cautious about that. But most things are reversible. And the reality is once you hit your 30s, nobody gives a fuck what you were doing in your early 20s, unless it was, say, illegal. Yeah. Oh, you got drunk and threw up at a college party or non-college party in your early 20s? Yeah, welcome to humanity. Who gives a shit? Um, but I would say explore more would be another thing. Not just be so limited to music. Hmm. Uh, things I would do less, I'd do less worrying about that I was doing it right or that I was behind the pressure that I felt that I was behind when I, I graduated, then I went to grad school and then I dropped out after a year. I was on academic probation, though I was still getting a tuition waiver and a stipend. So I think I got the better end of that deal at University of Illinois. Um, but all my friends at that point had started to get their first corporate jobs. And I'm comparing because that's what we do. We compare. And some comparison is good. How am I tracking? Um, but some comparison is, is bad and toxic. And that's the kind of comparison that I was doing is, oh, they're successful and I'm not. They might have hated their job. I hated my job too. But they might have hated their job. Maybe success. they don't feel successful. Be, seem, feel. You can be successful and seem successful, but not feel successful. You can feel successful and look successful, seem successful, but you're not successful. I'm thinking here, all you fucking Instagram hashtag entrepreneurs hustle all day, folks. Any motherfucker on earth can create a goddamn Instagram account. You're not an entrepreneur because you made an Instagram account. But, you know, do I... Am I objectively successful at the thing that I want to do? And that might have nothing to do with money. Am I objectively a good trombone player? Do I feel like a good trombone player? Do I seem like a good trombone player to others? So one is just the objective reality. That's the B. You are or you're not. I am an architect. Um, do I seem like an architect to others? Or, or I am an expert. That's maybe a better thing. I'm an expert in what I do. Others see me as an expert in what I do. I don't feel like an expert in what I do most days. I still get imposter syndrome. Why are these people listening to me? So those are, you got your internal perception of yourself. You have the external perception of you, and then you have the objective reality that's irrespective of anybody else's perspective. This is just what is. Objectively, based on all criteria of what would make an expert, I am an expert in what I do. Other people seem to think so, they pay me lots of money to do what I do. And so objectively from an external perspective, but then there's that internal struggle, at least for me personally, of I don't feel like an expert a lot of times, especially this past year, this has punched me in the face. I have not felt like an expert for most of the year. And, uh, and that was, uh, that, that was rough, but some people feel like an expert and they seem like an expert to others, but they don't know shit. They're not actually an expert or they seem like an expert to others, 
and they feel like an expert, but you know, there's all those combinations that exist. When I think I'm, I'm happy you brought up the imposter syndrome part, because I don't think I know more people that continuously go through it than not. And I if think how they what you with do, it. you will have imposter syndrome. Full stop. Exactly. Exactly. You and will I, feel I think they, they're feeling the exact same thing. They've just changed how they approach or how they perceive that feeling, but they're feeling the very same thing. You're on um, the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's important here is very important for me to hear as an early consultant, that, like these architects were feeling the same thing. There's the, but, you know, those, uh, computer games where you start off and the whole map is black except where you're standing. Mm -hmm. Starcraft like that. Yeah, Starcraft. That's <laughs> the one. So you start off at Starcraft, right? Or civilization. I like civilization. So okay. civilization and, and you see only this little area around you and, and then you kind of venture out in that uncertainty you're venturing out, you're exploring the map and now you got a better sense of what the map is. This is how our knowledge works. And this is how imposter syndrome works. Imposter syndrome is the part of the map you've not exposed yet. But you're right. The only way to get there is to get close and to see what it is. And so you're in this constant state of uncertainty because you don't know, is that going to be the barbarian horde in that dark spot over here? I don't know. And I don't know what's beyond what I see. And the, the, the thing with imposter syndrome, you have to just keep exploring the map. You have to keep going. You'll continue to expand more and see more. And then you'll go back to areas that you exposed at the very beginning of the game and you go, oh, I got this. I know exactly what's here. But when you're going around, when you're consulting, you're constantly at the edge of the dark circle where you're going, ah, I, I think yeah. this is where we go. It it reminds me of a, a quote that I heard from a guy named Nils Parker. Uh, yeah. In an interview he was doing and he said, um, and I actually, I remember I wrote it down. He's a smart guy. Uh, yeah. Very, very, very smart. And he had said in the absence of absolute clarity, we fill it with our worst fears. Mm. So it's why kids are afraid of the dark. It's why we're afraid of the boogeyman in the closet. Cause we, the closet's not open. We can't see everything in it. Um, and that, that stuck with me and it's, it, you apply that to consulting yeah. as well. Now, um, I want to actually dive into something that you, you, you just kind of set off the cuff. Um, you mentioned you felt like you were behind. I felt the oh, exact yeah. same way when I was in college, uh, because I didn't graduate within four years. I dropped out three times, uh, before actually getting the degree. What was do you remember the moments like that, that feeling set in and like, what would you tell John now, um, as former John is going, going through that experience and feeling? Yeah. Um, anyone who's not following the standard path is going to feel behind at some point because everyone else is towing the line. They're not taking detours. You're taking extra steps. You're going off. The, so yeah, you're going to end up behind, but you might actually discover maybe not a shortcut, but a different path that nobody's ever gone down before. And it's also your own unique path for people who are in their 
early 20s, late teens, whatever, there's a lot of pressure from society, parents, whatever, to figure it out. What do you want to do? Oh, that question. I don't fucking know. And I'm saying that now as a 37-year-old about to be 38. I don't know what I want to do. These kids are less than half my age. I realized that the other day, by the way. I was training with this kid. He's 18. And I'm realizing I, I am more than twice as old as a college freshman. Son of a bitch. <laughs> but that aside... If I don't know what I want to do, it is completely unreasonable for somebody who is less than half my age to know. And that's okay. It's okay if you don't know what you want to do. A different way to figure that out, though, or a less stressful question is, what do you want to do next? One word. Add one, one word. word to it. What do you want to do next? That means I can do a bunch of different things next. What do you want to do? It's so final. Yeah. Uh, what do I want to do? Fuck. One word. What do you want to do next? Well, actually, right now, next, I just want to write my book. That's what I want to do next. And then after that, I might want to do something else next. And then something else next. I'm going to make, I'm going to do more than one thing for the rest of my life. Uh, another friend didn't even realize he was giving me such profound advice. But when I was really struggling with this, in my late twenties, because I really felt behind. It was you got corporate jobs, people are getting married, people are having kids. I don't want to get married and have kids, but you still you're comparing yourself to the broader things of society. And you can't live an extraordinary life if you do ordinary things. All the time. Right. If you live the same life everybody else lives, you're gonna have the same life everybody else lives. So it's, it's what, what's, what's important to you fitting in or doing your own thing. Um, I got a kid, he's a kid, he's 24 year old man. Um, <laughs> really worried he's behind. Uh, I made some mistakes early in life and feel really behind and all this other stuff. I have to continually remind him. He's one of my jujitsu guys. I have to continually remind him, dude, I didn't have my first corporate job for another four years after where you are right now. The fact that you're even thinking about this, that doesn't have to be a corporate job. Corporate jobs are not all that great either. It's not all that bad either. But to think that if you just get the corporate job, everything's gonna be great. Everything's got trade-offs. Uh, and your 20s, that's when you can explore. That's when you experiment. Your 20s is a laboratory, you're trying all sorts of different stuff. And it is a disservice to yourself, in my opinion, to get locked into one thing. And that would have been very helpful for young John, for young Amir, like trying to, because mm -hmm. it, it brings anyone. you into the present moment, right? Like, mm -hmm. and what's your five-year plan? I don't fucking know. I didn't think I'd be here five years ago. Five years ago yeah. when I started, about five years ago that I started learning what CPQ was. And it was in uh, April of 2016 when I learned what uh, I took my first CPQ class for two days, completely overwhelmed by it. And it's a, it's a toy. It's basically what's on trailhead. It's like not a lot. 
And now I'm an expert in this thing. And I look back at that class, I go, that was nothing. Um, also, another thing to think about, my buddy did this without even realizing it. He got me to think differently about my career. I was putting so much pressure on myself to figure out what do you want to do? So well, what if you do something for 10 years and then you do something else for 10 years and then you do something else for 10 years? I'd never considered that. He said it off the cuff. He wasn't even trying to be profound, but it is profound. What if this is the end of my actual Salesforce career and it's the start of something new for another 10 years? Because it was about 10 years ago that I started down this. Maybe the next 10 years I'm an author or a jujitsu coach. Now I do something else. We're going to work from the time we're 25 to 75 ballpark. That's a 50 year timeline. You could have two 25 year careers in completely different things in 50 years. Or you could have five 10 year careers. Or you could have 10 five year careers. You can do it all, just not at the same time. What I'm hearing um, from you and a lot of other people I've talked to and what I see in Reddit forums is that this feeling of not feeling like you're behind is perfectly normal. We compare ourselves Absolutely. to other people. Everyone feels and that way. It's exactly like drawing this kind of laterally to imposter syndrome mm -hmm. where it's that a feeling is going to be there. It's just, you're changing your, your relationship with it and kind of, yeah. going, okay, well, where did this story come from in my head that I'm telling myself right now that I'm behind, where did I learn that story? And does like, logically, does that story yeah. make sense if I spell it out and then use the mental model that you were kind of going through with assessing the costs, the, the ROI, what am I actually getting out of this? Are my skills that I'm developing here portable forward? Am I going to take the creativity from college and then apply that? If, um, if imposter syndrome comes from exposing more of the map because you're continuing to explore and unearth more of the dark area. In Starcraft and civilization. Yep. In Starcraft and civilization. So if the source of imposter syndrome is not quite being comfortable with the newly exposed area of the map, then that means that if you're not experiencing imposter syndrome, you're not growing. Because you're looking at the same map you've always looked at. So exploring the map creates imposter syndrome because every time you unveil more, you, you know, bring some light on those dark tiles, you don't really know what's there yet. You still got to look at it. You got to explore it, figure out what this is. Okay, now I know what this grid square is. Oh, shit. There's a new grid square that I can kind of see. I don't know what's in there. I'm going to take a couple steps forward. Okay, now I'm kind of familiar with this and, and all of that. So that imposter syndrome is, is a signal of growth because you're constantly exploring more of the map. And as you explore more, you will start to see more and you'll start to kind of see new stuff all the time. So it, it never goes away. It's like in jujitsu, you'll never get, stop getting your face smashed ever. You're always going to get your face smashed. You just get used to it. It's a constant. Oh yeah. 
Or if you're a boxer, to use another metaphor, you're gonna get punched in the face. Don't get mad if you're boxing and you get punched in the, you're boxing. This is the game. So it, easier yeah. said than done, of course. And in the moment, things are, but even now I'm an expert. I have, if you just take, if, you, if we go on the assumption that a work year is 2000 hours and that mastery is 10,000 hours, and I've been doing CPQ consulting for five years, revenue cloud consulting for five years, by the 10,000 hours rule, I'm a master. Yeah. Objectively, based on research. Now the research is, there are all sorts of ways to interpret that stuff, but just ballpark. I'm an expert by many objective standards and I feel imposter syndrome every day. The best of the best feel it because you're constantly exploring new stuff. I I keep finding new corners of the map. Where go I didn't know this corner was here. I've never seen this before. Imposter syndrome. But after a while, you go, okay, I know what this one is. This is another just stupid product defect that I'm not going to be able to get around. And to use, and I might getting be getting a little technical here, but I'm starting to experience this now where if I'm not experiencing imposter syndrome of some sorts to any degree, I get bored really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. Keeps you on edge, keeps you sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Because when, yeah. when you feel like an imposter, you got to prove yourself. So I got to really go overboard to make sure that I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll and fix I'll... that real quick. Uh, learn how to be a billing architect. There you go. <laughs> now you got well, imposter syndrome again. You're welcome. I'll fix that real quick. Yeah. <laughs> I don't say yeah. that anymore. I've made that mistake recently. Um, <laughs> well, that's just how to induce imposter syndrome real fast in somebody who yeah. does revenue club. Going back to college, where else do you think you could have acquired that creativity skill if you had to? Anywhere in life depends. Like, I think everything is art. Every job is creative. What if that's true? What if it's true that, I don't know, being a garbage man has creative aspects to it? Probably is. What's the best way to get a trash can dumped into the back of a truck? I don't know. I've never done it before. I'm sure there are better approaches than others. There might be some creativity there. Writing, conversations. Um, I see my work as a software architect as a very creative thing. It's just a different canvas. It doesn't look like a, I don't have an easel and I don't have physical brushes and I'm not using real paint, but I'm still creating. Uh, I have uh, one of my developers say, oh, I'm not a creative person yet. He comes up with the most original solutions to things that I've seen because he doesn't, he was, before he got into this, he was managing a pizza hut. And then he pizza taught himself manager how to, to developer. He taught himself how to code. So he's a pizza hut manager and he taught himself how to code. And now he's one of the best developers I've worked with. And he comes up with scenarios where the blinders person to me who knows best practices, I go, but that violates the best practices. He goes, yeah, but it works. Yeah. Uh, well, uh. I mean, he's Can't right. argue with that. Yeah. I do mm -hmm. all the time, but that's also where the collision of ideas comes in. 
get two ideas that collide and that makes a spark and that's your innovation. It, it seems like what you're getting at is it, it doesn't really matter as long as you're, you're, what you do, what degree or whether you go to college or not is just a medium to the skill that you're acquiring and, and how much and you it like can accelerate it well. your acquisition of that skill. I would learn accounting faster in an accounting class than on my own. Yeah. Could I learn it on my own? Yes. Would it be faster if I took a structured curriculum about this thing that people have been doing for hundreds of years? Probably. Yeah. There's a reason and they teach it this way. To use your Stanford application as a launch off point for this, and it'll be the last kind of theme I want to um, explore here um, is relationships. Now, I have no doubt that a big benefit of going for an MBA at Stanford would be for the relationships. It's a big reason would people be get an MBA. The network, you hear it all the time. Tell me about that. Pay, network, knowledge, brand are the big four. I want to get paid more. I want to build a network so that I could get jobs and all this other stuff and schmooze with high rollers. I want a, a good brand that's that legitimizes who I am. I want a stamp of approval and I want the knowledge. At this point, I get paid more than a graduate of Stanford gets paid unless they're in like investment banking or things. And there's people that get paid more than me. I don't really, beyond a certain point, it's just money. Yeah. Which is an empowering mindset to have. When you don't have money, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's just money. No, no, no. It, it gets to a, once you grow to a certain point, it becomes, it's just money. And it's not going to make you feel more fulfilled. Um, the gym doesn't make me any money, but I am enriched from the experience, you know? The brand, okay? I've worked for a company that is harder to get into than Stanford. Salesforce had, years ago, Salesforce had more than 125 applications per role on average. That is less than 1% acceptance rate. During the height of the pandemic, in the middle of a recession, I was hired as an architect by the software company, one of the biggest software companies in the world. Okay, I, I, that's a legitimacy stamp. Same thing if you work for Google or Facebook, Salesforce, nobody really knows about because it's not a consumer-based business. But it's big enough in the tech world that people know about it. And so they go, oh, this guy worked at Salesforce. He's legit. He was an architect there. He must know what he's doing. And now, even if somebody's never met me, if they're a Salesforce alumni as well, now they go, oh, you're an architect at Salesforce. I don't have to question your legitimacy. So that's, that's done. And if I want to stay in tech, I can do that. I don't need like the brand. I got the stamp, uh, the knowledge, knowledge. Yeah, that's the biggest draw for me at this point. Um, because I'm sure there are, are mental models that are taught in business school that you're just getting a ton of mental models at the same time. You're learning from your professors, you're learning from your peers, all these other great things. That's, that's the biggest draw for me anymore. It's just the raw knowledge. And uh, I think the friendships too. Networking, not from the sense that I wanna get a job, but networking in the sense I wanna be surrounded by fascinating people. 
Uh, and then um, what was the last one? So money, brand, knowledge, and network. So the network part, that part is very interesting to me. Some advice I got from a uh, CEO of a company I used to work for. He does not have an MBA, but he said, if I was going to get one, I would go to the place that I thought had the best network for what I wanted to do. And when you think for about going there you're, for what I wanted to do, I don't know if he added that part or if that's my embellishment, but um, because it, they, you will rise to their level and vice versa. Uh, and I want to be surrounded, like I said, I want to be surrounded by smart, kind, fascinating, interesting people. And I want to go to the place that brings those people in. Stanford's a place for the weird ones. I'm weird. Um, I didn't know that. And, and Stanford for the weird ones. I know you're weird, but yeah, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the um, a lot of these these people who are sitting on these admissions boards, they're trying to make an interesting class. A class is just a collision of ideas stir the pot, get a lot of different perspectives. And so um, I, that meeting people who have done things you've never even considered doing, and it's weird because you've been around yourself your whole life. They've never been around you. So they think that what you've done, like, wow, that's fascinating. You're like, really? And vice versa. Wow, that's fascinating. They're like, really? So everybody's just, we're all uninteresting to ourselves. Unless you're a narcissist. Unless you're a narcissist. Correct. Why? It, it, this sounds uh, very simplistic, but why do relationships matter? And how have you seen that play out, played out in your experience? Relationships matter because relationships are all we have. Humans are a social species. We're a social animal. You have to have relationships or we literally die. You take relationships and socialization away from a human being, they will die. It's the worst you punishment in prison, it. right? Correct. Isolate them. Solitary confinement. Solitary confinement for a month is torture because humans are social animals. You will turn a person crazy if they cannot talk to other people, if they cannot be around other people. In the world of work, I've come to describe your network as your safety net for work. The more strands you have in your safety net, the less likely you are to plummet to your death if you fall. And the net's there to catch you. I've never thought about if that. If I got fired right now, I have an incredible safety net. When I posted about, you know, the Salesforce canned a bunch of people this week, right? When I posted that I was willing to help and reach out and all this other stuff, that post, now, analytics, whatever views, I'm not sitting there refreshing, seeing how many do I have now, because I'm just trying to help people. I was shocked at how quickly that spread. It's got over almost 400 reactions so far. It's got over 25,000 views. The people who have those views are all like Salesforce administrators, developers, architects, et cetera, my target audience. People reach out over the years uh, and ask for help. I just help them. And they'll remember that shit. You give somebody 15 minutes of undivided attention now, they'll remember that for years. And that, then when you need, a, you need some help, they got you. 
this particular solution engineer I mentioned earlier. I helped her early on with her career. She got to a place where she didn't think she was going to go, at least that soon. And so now, if I need to eat, I say, hey, I need a deal. You got anything? And she, oh, yeah, here's a, here's a customer that you would love. They're nice. They know what they want. They know what they're doing. And I go, that sounds nice. Sure. 200 bucks an hour, 250 an hour. Oh, they're fine with that. And, and they can help curate the things for you. Um, but relationships, you can be doing a shitty job or be in a shitty situation, but if you're with the right people, it makes it better. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really all everything is it's all relationships. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as you like who you're doing it with. When I think back to your college experience, it was the first thing you kind of mentioned was your relationships with the people that you're playing music with. Mm -hmm. Even like maybe may not have been because of college, but it was the experience at the time that you were in college was the relationships. And yeah. So people ask me too, did I miss the military? You know, I got out, people told me some mentors of mine told me I was stupid for getting out of the military without retiring at 20 years. It was 12 years and I was done and my Salesforce career was going crazy. I, I knew that that would slow me down. So I got out. Do I miss the military? No, but I miss the people. What I'm hearing from you in terms of relationships is that it's a two way street. It's not just, I know this person. It's, I know this, that this person will do for me what I would do for them. And those are the relationships to strive for, right? Not just like, yeah. not just, not just a LinkedIn contact, but. Yeah. It's almost like you can, if the relationship is the rope and you're just latched onto them, but the other hand, end is dangling, you can't walk across that. It's a broken strand in your network. You got to have both holding on. Um, so, to, you know, a rope with only one anchor point doesn't work too well if you're trying to cross it. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the cost of college that you're seeing uh, since you've left. You were mentioning yeah. before we hit uh, record was just like. Yeah, I, I forget when I read it and it was a while ago, but the takeaway was the college prices have increased at double the rate of inflation for a long, long time, decades. So inflation is, say, usually 3%, although the past year has been uh, magical in that way. But let's just say typically 3% inflation. And college tuition prices have increased at 6%, which, based on the rule of 72, uh, where you take the interest rate and you divide 72 by the interest rate, and that gets you the number of years. So with uh, 72 divided by 6, that's going to be, what, uh, 12? Okay, so it'll take 12 years Every 12 years, tuition will double. So it's 10,000 now. 12 years from now, it'll be 20,000. In 24 years, it'll be uh, 40,000 a year. In 36 years, it'll be $80,000 a year. Then it'll be $160,000 a year. Then it'll be $320,000 a year. Okay, there is a logical place. point. 
where it cannot go up that much. Yeah. It'll get to a certain point where people will, it will be cost prohibitive even to the wealthy if it continues at the growth rate that it's going. Now, the counterbalance to that are all of these other universities that are spinning up out of nowhere. So as access to universities goes up, the supply increases. So the problem we have now is, you know, supply and demand, you got a whole bunch of people trying to go to college. Colleges can pay whatever they want. The problem is compounded. Politics aside, it's it's a delicate subject, but a person could get any amount of money they want for college, basically. Yeah. Yet you can't get rid of it in bankruptcy. We'll let you borrow as much money as you want, but you'll never be forgiven of that debt. But you what can't could drink a possibly beer. go wrong? You can't drink a beer. What could possibly go wrong in that scenario? So colleges go, we can charge whatever the fuck we want because the government will cut a check for it. This person's not going to really viscerally feel how much money this is until it's too late. And then they're locked in and we get paid no matter what, because if they default, the government pays us. Yay. If you're a business, which they are, why wouldn't you increase your price? <laughs> nonprofit these people have the does money. not mean, yeah. Nonprofit does not mean no money. Yeah, absolutely. There's money involved whole, whole bunches of it. And so that's why, you know, I mean, it's a giant ad campaign. The college is always worth it. Yeah. It's worth it quite often, but it's always worth it. Anytime you hear always or never raise an eyebrow because somebody's trying to get something sold. That Buying a house is always the best investment you'll ever make. No, it's not. Objectively, it's not. It's you not always the worst decision. No. But it's not always the best one. I can speak to that. I bought a house with my wife a year and a half ago. Our mortgage payment has gone up 50%, five zero in one year because of the interest rate increases up in Canada. Good Lord. Yeah. So um, like we didn't stretch ourselves thin by any means, but um, oof. Like, uh, oof. oof. Um, but uh, going to your, what you had just said though, uh, in terms of whether college was worth it, which is ironically enough, the, the whole theme of the show in your case on a scale of one to 10, one being absolutely not wasn't worth it at all. 10 being, Oh, I would have picked that path every single time. Was college worth it for you? And you can't pick seven. The number is dependent on the value I'm supposed to get from college. Well, what's valuable if to the you? Purpose, if the purpose of college is to get a job, which you would infer based on all the how much, what the employment rate is afterwards and all this other stuff. Uh, if it is to get a job, then I would rate my college as probably a one or a two. I graduated with a bachelor's degree in music, so that might be part of it. Um, but I guess theoretically, if you get a bachelor's degree in music performance as a trombone player and the purpose of college is to get a job, then I should have had a job as a trombone player after college. Well, there aren't a whole lot of people hiring trombone players. 
unless you're the military or you're a world-class orchestra or, or a regional orchestra, and then good luck making a full-time life of income of making a life's worth of income as a professional trombone player. Good luck making that come together. If the purpose of college is to make friends uh, that'll last a lifetime, I would give it say an eight only because friends from college typically fade out just like friends from high school did, just like friends from work will. People go through your life, they rotate in, they rotate out. Some people stick around the whole time, others fade in, that's fine, it's part of life. If the purpose of college is to learn stuff, um, I'd say I'd give it a, I don't know, a six. Cause I don't really remember a lot of the stuff I took, all the music theory I did, the music history, this, that, and the other thing. Cause I haven't used it mostly since college. I can wow people at parties with my knowledge of music history, but anybody who took music history with me knew that I didn't know shit. I was constantly surprised when we had quizzes because I wasn't ever paying attention. If the purpose of college is to have interesting experiences and be able to tell funny stories later, I'd probably give it a nine. So what do you want to get out of college? And does college enable that goal or not? Because if, if your entire purpose is to get a job, if the purpose of college is to get a job, to go back through this whole thing again, if the purpose of college is to get a job, then to most ensure that you're going to be successful, then you had better do something like get an education degree or a nursing degree or something incredibly pragmatic. There are, there are jobs for this thing. I must have this degree to get this job. Therefore, I am going to college to get this job that requires this degree. Same thing with graduate school and beyond. You take the most utilitarian cutthroat approach feasibly uh, or, or humanly possible, and you go forward with that. If the purpose is to make friends, optimize for that. Go to a fucking party school. Have a great time. <laughs> if the purpose of college is to learn stuff, then go to the best academic program you could possibly get. Major, follow your curiosity. Major in the thing that interests you. I majored in music performance. I learned a ton of stuff about music and all sorts of things that most humans on earth will never know. Uh, it's uh, basically completely unmarketable. I certainly didn't get a fucking job from that. The only way I'd stand a chance of getting a job based on that knowledge is to keep going down the academic path and hopefully become a professor of like music history or music theory or some shit. If the purpose of college is to broaden your perspectives, optimize for that. Take as many different unrelated classes as humanly possible. Find, yes, you got gen eds. Everybody's got to do gen eds. Pick the weirdest one. Then with your electives, pick something you would never pick. Or get even crazier. Have a friend pick your electives. <laughs> or even crazier, have somebody you don't like pick your electives. <laughs> <laughs> or somebody who thinks completely differently than you. Um, look through and see what's the elective I would never take graphic design. Yeah, sure. Let's take that. Steve jobs, you know, take it sitting in on that calligraphy class. And that's why the first Mac had fonts. No, the computer had fonts, but the Mac did. He talked about that in his commencement speech. 
It's all because he just followed his curiosity. So it, is college worth it? What are you willing to pay to get the thing you want? And for you, it was worth it in that, in those different categories. Yeah. Let's take the MBA, my recent decision or indecision to pursue an MBA. So the pay part, if I want to just get paid a bunch of money, I'm already in a career where I can make a bunch of money, right? If I wanted to get another job that pays $200,000 plus, I can do that. I'm very, very lucky in that way. And I built strong relationships. I work really hard. I know my shit. It's a combination of the luck, skill, relationships, et cetera, that allow me to do that, right? And luck is a big part of that. Yeah. The, so that's out. The brand stuff, if you know how... <laughs> The brand stuff, I mean, that's more just external validation that somebody is really impressed with the company that I work for. You'll see people yeah. do this a lot earlier in their careers. And I even recommend it. Go work for PwC for a year or two. Get the thing on your resume. Go work for the big corporation that everybody's impressed by. Go work for Google. The network. If you know how to send a fucking email and not sound like an idiot, you can build your own goddamn network. Uh, I didn't follow up like I should have with this particular one, but dude, there's a, there's a video, how to negotiate your job offer. Uh, it's a Harvard negotiation professor from Harvard business school. Okay. If you look at the description in that YouTube video, I wrote that. Deepak Malhotra, how to negotiate your job offer. Look at the copy in the description of that video, assuming he hasn't changed it. Yeah. I wrote that because it was something else before then. And he, he mentioned his books yeah. and I basically wrote him. My subject said, how you can sell more books. Talk about a compelling headline. No kidding. He opened it up and I said, Hey, professor. Um, I, uh, I noticed your video. I love your video. Learned a lot from it. It's great. I noticed you got your books listed in your thing, but there's no actual, um, there's no links to your books. So here's a rewritten description optimized to make sure that you can actually see these right away and know that there are links to the books, first of all, because unless you open the drawer, you don't even know those links are there. So I rewrote it so you would know the links were there and they were easily clickable and all this other stuff. And you, would you believe it if a few weeks later he had copy pasted that and put it in his description? That's all he had to do because I wrote it for him. Now, did he say I didn't thank follow you? up like I should. He did. He did. He said, okay. this is great. Thank you very much or whatever. So I have advised a Harvard Business School professor. How fucking crazy is that? And I made myself a little project and I added value to his life in some way. I should have made those Amazon affiliate links low key. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would have made you a lot of money, huh? Um, Potentially, but you know, he, uh, he, he, he put them there and uh, he used the links. And so now that that's how you can build a network. I sent a smart email. I added value and made his life better. And that was the start of a potential relationship. And you, you added value. So relations network, you can make your own goddamn network. If the purpose of the network is to secure jobs, I have that in spades and it's only going to grow.
when I published this book. And then the knowledge, that's the last piece. Um, well, and I would, I, I, per the network, networking for the intention of getting a job, I'm good on that. However, making friends and learning this material, those are the two things that remain. Because unless I make a really deliberate personal practice to try to learn this stuff, it's going to take me a long time. It will be a faster download of information to be surrounded in it, by it and immersed in it. So from that end, it would make sense. And then you're going to learn as much from your peers as your professors. And also as these people go out on their, just like when your coworkers leave their company and they go someplace else, your network continues to expand and you're, you have satellites all over the fucking world. Same thing here. I want really high quality friends. Now, is it elitists who think that I'm going to rebuild my friend network by going to Stanford? Absolutely. Do I care? No. I want amazing friends. And the types of people that I have met who have gone to some of these top business schools are people that I would want to hang out with. And there are great people in the town that I'm living in as well. But we like people we, who, who we relate to. And yeah. I relate to these types of folks. Interestingly, post-pandemic, pre-pandemic, was a few years ago, the last time I went to MBA events, I sit in these events, I listen to people, and when I was in my 20s, I'm looking around going, oh, man, we get, we're, I'm the same age as these folks, and I'm way out of my depth because they're all Ivy League and asking smart questions and this and the other thing. And then I come back post-pandemic, and now I feel like I identify more with the people on the panel than I do with the people in the audience. Like, oh, I'd probably be a coworker with that person. And then everybody's always asking the same damn questions. This happened before as well, but now it's, it's, uh, I'm asking a different question of the panelists in these things. Everybody else is like, what should I get on my GMAT score? Google it. This is a waste yeah. of a question. What should I, what should I do to make sure I get in? You, you realize no one's actually going to tell you the real answer, right? My question was, you know, you thought about going and getting an MBA. You probably thought about it for a while. You went, you got it. Now you're on the other side. What did you get completely wrong? <laughs> and they all paused. They all thought deeply about it. And they were surprised by that question. They never heard us. I'm stealing that. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, you could ask the same thing about people in, in this industry. What did you get completely wrong about Salesforce? And a lot of people, once you're in the shit for a while, they go, oh, I thought it was going to be all like fluffy cartoon characters and mm -hmm. glittery penguins and shit. And you go, no, it's real business software. And these are really difficult and complicated problems to solve. And this work is really stressful when you're doing it at the highest levels. And sometimes you really don't fucking like it. Let me actually flip the it's script not, on you. Yeah. on, on okay. with that question. What did you get completely wrong about college? What did I get completely wrong about college? Damn you for stealing my question. <laughs> I told you I was going to steal it. Well, since I took a few different swings at college for different reasons at different times, let's go through each one of them. 
my undergraduate experience, what I got about wrong about college, going from high school right into college, is that college is the answer. There is no answer for what you should do after high school. There's only, there's certainly no right answer. There's only your right answer. And that's different for everybody. Maybe it's a gap year. Maybe it's a blue collar job. Make good money. You paid to learn. How about that shit? Nobody's paying you to write their write English papers. But hell, if you if you practice writing enough, you might get somebody to pay you to be a contributor to some sort of publication. And now you're you're a published author in say a regional newspaper or something like that. Um, when I went into grad school, first the first time before I dropped out, um, I got wrong that <laughs> I got it wrong that grad school must be the answer. Ah, college is the answer. Nope. It's got to be grad school. If I just take it to the next level, then following my passion would have been great advice. Uh, no, I was more miserable than before. And then because I'm an idiot and a slow learner, the third time or the second time I went into grad school, what I got wrong was, oh, it was definitely the last the last graduate school program. That was the problem. Well, and I, did, I didn't think uh, what I got wrong is I, I externalized in all cases. I think I externalized or blamed or tried to ah, I tried to mm, I tried to delegate accountability or I tried to delegate oh, decision, accountability, responsibility for figuring out my life to someone else. Or something else. It's college's job to figure out what to do with my life. Wow. It's my job. Now I know it's my job to figure out what I want to do with my life. Same problem I had at Salesforce. I'm going, uh, oh, I was doing these other jobs. Now I'm here. I made it. That's what I got wrong about Salesforce is that sale, when I made it to Salesforce, then my career, I'd finally have my dream job and life would be great. And then I was still stressed for some projects. I'm still annoyed by other projects, found myself bored. But then I realized I gave my job too many jobs. Your job's job is to pay you money. That's it. It is your job to live a meaningful, interesting, and fulfilling life. It's not all your now. work might be part of that. You can find element if you if your work is meaningful and fulfilling and interesting to you. Awesome. That is not its function. Its function is to pay you. That is it. If you get more out of it, sweet bonus. But if you rely on your job, or if you rely on school or anything other than yourself to make your life meaningful, interesting, and fulfilling, you can come up empty every time. That's a great way to put it. I've never heard of, I, I definitely, I'm guilty of that, of putting the accountability of my decisions or my outcome on the college or on the employer. And yeah. 
but at the end of the day, man, it, it's fucking on you, right? If I just pay this entity $120,000, go into debt to do it, they will tell me how to figure out my life. Now, you can absolutely go and maybe take a philosophy class that talks about the meaning of life and you read some really good books and you have interesting conversations. And you can certainly discover those things about yourself in college, but you don't mm -hmm. need college to read those books or to learn those lessons or to have those discussions. Shit. How many times were you in college and you had those philosophical conversations while you were shit-faced at a house party? Yeah. You can get shit-faced at a house party without college. You don't have to pay 120K. Now, you're kind of self-selecting for maybe a smarter person if you're getting into college. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're getting shit-faced with smarter people, maybe. Well, you're still getting shit-faced. I'm picturing a college's uh, marketing ad, get shit-faced with smarter people. <laughs> that would work. <laughs> Probably would work. Trademark that right now. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. John, thank you so much for doing this and um, spending the time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, you've provided some wonderful insight and have got me thinking about things that I don't think I would have, have been able to see had I not talked to you about this. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And, uh, and I appreciate for everything, uh, all the conversations we've had outside of this podcast too, as a friend, and I really appreciate all that. I appreciate you, um, to the audience. How do people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Yeah. First of all, thank you for the kind words. I, uh, I appreciate talking to you as well. Um, and you know, that's, that's my job. I'm not a religious guy. I'm not big on fate or any of these things, but if there is a reason that I am here on earth, it is to get people to think differently about things and to shake their worldview and get them to consider new perspectives. So I'm glad I was able to do that. Uh, if anybody's interested in finding me, I'm easy to find on the internet. Just Google John Garvin's and go to johngarvin's.com. Uh, find me on LinkedIn, connect if you want. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you if you decide to reach out. Excellent. Thanks again. And uh, what I'm hearing is that there's a definite round two, uh, a year like, you know, down Probably. the line where I ask you um, what you got completely wrong about the last thing that you decided to take on. So, Dude, I've gotten so many things completely wrong and I will continue <laughs> to do so. And I've come to accept that that's okay. Uh, with that, uh, to the audience, thank you for watching and hope you all have a fantastic day.